Hello and welcome to Generation Squeeze's Hard Truths Podcast. My name is Umer and I will be your host this evening. Or afternoon or morning. Whenever it is you happen to be tuning in, look, let's not worry too much about what time of day it is. Let's just get on with the show, all right? Today's episode is about the affordability plan that the federal government recently unveiled. The plan is meant to help address the rapid rise in the cost of living that we've all been experiencing. As usual, I will be chatting with Dr. Paul Kershaw and Andrea Long. Paul is the founder, lead researcher, and executive chair of GenSqueeze, and Andrea is our senior director of research and knowledge mobilization. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you on the other side of the musical transition. Hi, Paul and Andrea, again. Good afternoon, Amer. Good morning. Good afternoon, yes. And good morning to time you. Time zones. Yeah, we're in different time zones. Uh, I'm curious, since the last time we chatted, has the weather improved at all? <laughs> I guess it depends what your definition of improve is. I think it's rained less, but it's still cool here. I'll put the glass half full attitude. A year ago at this time, we were in a very frightening heat dome where the temperatures were literally 45 degrees Celsius and bats and birds were falling from the sky. Um, We've had now many months of cool, wet weather, also kind of an extreme. Um, Not great, but I find this better than bats and birds falling out of the sky. That's a good way to look at it. Hopefully that doesn't happen again this year. Or the crazy floods. Or the fires. Or the fires. I mean, if we're going to just start in this kind of place, because I kind of brought it here, I think, you know, the past 12 months has had fires, floods, plague, and war. It's a little bit too biblical for me. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we can achieve some more positive direction than that. Yeah, yeah. This is a bit of a difficult place to start. But uh, the other thing we've seen, actually, in the not in the past several months just actually in the in the very recent past is inflation which is the topic that we'll be chatting about today on june 16th deputy prime minister and minister of finance Krista freeland delivered a speech in which she outlined an affordability plan Uh, this is a plan that the liberal government hopes will counter some of the strain that's being caused by high rates of inflation so i guess uh the best place to start would be to ask what is in this affordability plan? Well, I think if folks have been following the news at all, they've probably heard framed as a criticism that what's in the affordability plan is a bunch of stuff that the Liberal government has already talked about in its budget and elsewhere. Um, However, um, that doesn't mean that there aren't some good and useful measures being announced that will have some positive impact for some Canadians. So, it's, I think, a look, there's quite a range of measures being proposed. I think some of the things of particular interest to us at Gen Squeeze are around continuing on with the reductions to childcare costs that the Liberals have sort of his, quite historically in the Canadian context invested in creating an affordable national childcare system. They're also talking about some of the announcements in the budget around supporting an extension of our medical care system to include things like dental care. Uh, that's targeted as a starting point to kids and families with kids. 
And then there are other measures as well around trying to relieve some of the immediate pressures around housing affordability and implementing some of the long-standing changes that the Liberals have talked about for a little while to things like old age security payments and increasing those for the especially older demographic um, of folks receiving OAS. So it's, as I said, it's pretty wide ranging, but there's a number of things in there that I think it's definitely worth talking about from our organizational standpoint, but maybe Paul, let you weigh in if there's anything else you wanted to flag about what's in the plan. No, I like like the summary that you've given. I think our comments are going to be what's in the plan and what isn't. But you know, let's begin by giving some high-level observations, you know, and to some kudos, I guess. So, you know, I think this government is recognizing a, a kind of standard gen squeeze line. We say, like, never demean people's hard work and don't demean when people are struggling. And there definitely are many Canadians right now struggling as the cost of living is shifting. And I think we need to to acknowledge that actually this government has is trying to do things right in the moment and has been preparing in previous years to anticipate this kind of challenge and have the right kind of tools ready. So Andrea already talked about childcare. I I don't want to just gloss over that. Like Gen Squeeze got started over a decade ago with our new deals for families and its recommendation of $10 a day childcare because we said childcare can no longer cost another mortgage or rent size payment, especially as rent and mortgages are going up. And so it's really important that governments are taking action to dramatically reduce the prices of childcare. It can't happen fast enough. And unfortunately, it takes a while to phase in a new system that requires more more childcare educators and more spaces. But the effort to reduce prices by half at the end of this calendar year is really significant. Jen Squeeze is going to want to say as we go forward, Let's not let $10 a day be the average fee. Let's let, let's given price pressures that people are facing, especially in the housing market, let's let 10 bucks a day be the max payment. And we can talk about that on other podcast episodes in the future. I think it is cool. Andrew mentioned like the dental care is being rolled out for families with kids. Normally, when we do things through medical care, it tends to be an investment um, later in the life course. That's where most of the money will go. So the fact that they're trying to reduce costs here with families and kids is consistent with our earlier podcast that, you know, the, you know, there's the myth that most seniors are poor. That's not correct. Most seniors are not poor. They have the lowest rates of low income of any age group in the country. Economic vulnerability more concentrated in families with kids. So that pressure to that that investment to reduce the cost of dental care is an interesting one. Although I think Andrea later on will pick up. You know, don't forget, health doesn't start with healthcare. And I guess one other thing, and this will bore people, but for decades, old age security, so the investment in retirees has been indexed to inflation. So that when you have large bursts of inflation like we're experiencing right now, you won't erode away the real value of the benefit that seniors are receiving. But other benefits, like our Canada Child Benefit, prior to the Trudeau federal government, had not been indexed to inflation. So had they not made that change earlier in their government, you would have seen, you know, the rates of inflation now five, six, maybe we'll hear it's over seven percent, that that would have been chipping away at the actual, the real value of those benefits. But this government... It may sound wonky, uh, but when the finance minister talks about that indexation, that actually is a reasonably big deal. It didn't exist in the past for younger Canadians, so way to go, federal government. So there's, I think, the places where we need to give them tick marks. I have lots of things to say about, like, hey, what about X, Y, and Z? But I'll hand it back to you, Umer. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess we, we should probably dig in a bit deeper into the specific proposals that are in the plan. But the way that it was outlined suggested that the series of sort of steps that are in it will get inflation under control 
And I don't know if you want to talk about that aspect of it, of the inflation, you know, and where it's coming from, what can be done about it. Because really what it seems to me is they're going about it the other way where they're the, well, it's called the affordability plan. So they're talking about how, how can people sort of manage inflation? Yeah. So I don't know if what, how do we structure that part of that conversation? I'll jump in on that um, and engage on it partly. I think one of the key things that I wanted to observe in today's conversation is, you know, not all price inflation harms people in the same way. In fact, not all price inflation harms people. So if you think about inflation to food costs or to gas costs, that is, you know, primarily hurting most Canadians because the owners of those products are a small number of companies. And so when the value of that, pro that product goes up, um, Canadians generally aren't benefiting from that. They're just paying more. But the housing inflation, which is our major cost of living, that is not, you know, it is a very different scenario. The majority of, of housing is owned by Canadians. The majority of Canadians are homeowners. And so as those values are rising, we have to be very careful when we're thinking about, you know, is this uh, harming people? Because homeowners, as I've described myself, you know, we actually are getting wealthier. And so we have to talk about, you know, what kinds of inflation are harming people and what kinds of inflation are actually hurting, helping some and, and hurting more of a minority. And, you know, I was listening earlier today to some radio shows that were talking about inflation. And, and I heard a homeowner talk about how the person's property taxes has been going up as their home value has been rising and that that was, you know, such a difficulty. Well, I'll share my example. So last year, BC assessment told me my home went up by about half a million dollars. My property taxes went up by $300 a year. I'm like, that's a pretty good trade. <laughs> it is the case that mortgage holders and, you know, full disclosure, my mortgage is like over 400,000, you know, so when it needs to be renegotiated, and there's going to be higher interest rates, you know, people are going to be facing that, ch that challenge. Uh, again, never demean when people are struggling. Uh, but for those who've gained equity, that'll make it easier to manage with the banks. And for those who are going to struggle even more and face these higher monthly costs in, as homeowners, I hope actually that that creates kind of a sense of how renters for really now a decade plus have been seeing their rents rise in ways that, you know, they're not in control of and that, that are, they're having to manage routinely. And so I hope it kind of gets us a bit of an empathy for what's happening outside of the home ownership system. So are the factors that the federal government put in place enough to, you know, bring inflation down? Well, we kind of have these two major tools, like we can try, or three major, we can try and slow home prices down. We can try to use interest rates to just generally downplay the degree to which people are boring and then, you know, going and spending and consuming. And we can also raise questions about the degree to which governments are deficit financing. And I'd say we see Bank of Canada raising interest rates. And so that is likely to bring especially housing inflation down. Uh, you know, the challenges with food and with gasoline are in no small part related to what's happening in the war in Ukraine. And so it's harder for governments to really directly influence that. But on the deficit financing front, we are we have normalized all political parties that ran federally in the last uh, election. In fact, all parties that ran in the on recent Ontario election, they were all proposing to run deficits, operating deficits, when we're not in a recession. And that does contribute sort of to accelerating, you know, the economy. It's, it's intended to, you know, inject more pace into the economy. And that can potentially contribute to inflation. 
So that's a lot of material. At one point, I hope you're going to ask me, but hey, Paul, are there ways to like sort of, you know, square that circle with some of the policies that we've been talking about here at Gen Squeeze? I think there are some um, partial solutions that Gen Squeeze has been recommending and can offer. But before I get on that soapbox, I will uh, sit back down and pass it back to you and Andrea. So, Andrea, any thoughts on what Paul has said there? Well, maybe I'll just say a little bit about the housing price piece, because you asked, like, what's driving inflation uh, or, you know, what's driving current trends and current attention to them. And I think one thing that's interesting is that the inflation in housing prices, so the inflation in what most people are going to experience as their major cost of living, in fact, has not been front and center in the inflation conversation until sort of more recently, right? Like we've seen inflation, wild inflation, uh, housing prices are up in Canada by over 300% since the year 2000. And yet, there was very little conversation about that, very little conversation about interest rate tools or other monetary policy tools to help bring uh, housing costs uh, under control. Um, it's not until we saw the sort of supply chain disruption and then inflation and things like gas and food prices, where this conversation started to become more salient to people. And we saw the Bank of Canada uh, really making significant effort around their monetary policy tools like raising interest rates. So I think that's a really important observation in the current context and reflects some of the work that Gen Squeeze has been doing and really pushing on to say like, wow, if our inflation measure, the way in which we're capturing this data isn't looking at what's happening in housing, what are we doing wrong there? And while the, a lot of critique, I think, has been focused on the Bank of Canada and there's all sorts of political back and forth about what you can and cannot do with the Bank of Canada. Um, we're missing a piece of the puzzle, which is what our statistical aid agency, Statistics Canada, is doing uh, as the leads on who's measuring inflation, who's sending that signal to the Bank of Canada to say, hey, Bank of Canada, here's what you need to know about where inflation is at in Canada when you're making your policy decisions. And the way in which Statistics Canada is measuring inflation is really problematic in that it doesn't adequately capture the rising costs of actually getting into a home. Um, it only captures the costs of maintaining a home and how that changes once you already own one. Um, so that's something we've been really arguing for at Gen Squeeze that we need to fix and so that we can get a better policy signal to actually take action on inflation a bit sooner um, than one might have <laughs> hoped we had done on housing recently. As you're pointing out, Andrea, like the cost of housing has been inflating for more than half my life, actually, probably for most of it since the 90s, and certainly pretty much your entire life, actually, Umer. Yeah, um, but especially since, you know, the early 2000s. And so, yeah, so that hasn't really been on the agenda. It's the more recent increase in gas prices and other everyday commodities that are causing this sort of response from the government. Distinguishing the two is critical. So one, it is frightening if if you act if we're thinking that the Bank of Canada isn't using housing right now as its primary reason to be increasing interest rates. In 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 the defense of the Bank of Canada, I do hear some of its leaders actually referring to housing more now in what's driving some of their decision making. That's a positive. But the fact that our we've got this structural problem in the way we're measuring housing inflation and giving a target for the Bank of Canada that needs to be fixed because we don't want a repeat of this like a decade from now. But I think the fact that not everyone is harmed by rising home prices has to be brought into the conversation at this moment because it offers a partial solution. And it offers a partial solution to those who are especially being hurt by the rise in energy costs and the rise in food costs. Because 
one way we could try and deal with that is actually for those who are sort of low, you know, middle and lower income households that are really being pinched or squeezed by these price escalations. Um, we could be saying like, look, those who are benefiting from rising home values like me could be contributing slightly more via the taxes on housing wealth above a million bucks. That's one of our recommendations at Gen Squeeze, which then could be used to actually reduce the taxes, the income taxes that are owed by lower and middle earners. And I think that is one way to kind of like ease some of the financial pressure that's happening right now without necessarily just then driving up more deficits. So you could actually ask Canadians who are doing okay and in part benefiting from housing inflation to make sure we're contributing in ways that don't just result in our routinely deficit financing, not only a response to this inflation problem, but, you know, deficit finance, a range of things that people have wanted, including medical care and retirement income security, since those are the biggest drivers of our deficits in Canada. So I think that that's why we need this we need this conversation to to not simply say that housing and that pardon me that inflation is harming everyone. That narrative fuels a range of responses that then exacerbate the system that is going to say, oh, right now we're like it's just all economic hardship. But that is not as nuanced a conversation as we need to have. Again, never demean that many are struggling. And we want to adapt to that and meet people and help people deal with those struggles. But we need more nuance than just everyone is being harmed because you could go down a different route. And so here I'll give kudos again to the, you know, Christopher Freeland and her government right now. Like, I think it's laudable, actually. They're resisting the idea that please reduce the pressure at the gas pump. From a generational standpoint, I think that that's the right move. Find other ways to reduce people's costs. Jen Squiz has long said, like, you know, let's ease people's childcare costs. Let's figure out how we slow down home prices so that's not hurting people's pocketbook as much. But don't change the price signals that the market is sending around pollution because pollution is actually giving rise to the biggest existential intergenerational injustice we have. And that is putting at risk the very climate that younger people and future generations rely on. And let's remember that some of the escalation in food prices and some of the escalation in energy costs is actually related to the very climate change that our pollution is causing. And so we can't be solving the short-term pocketbook issues by exacerbating the long-term climate change hazards that are coming towards us or not are they coming towards us, that are here now. I mean, we started off, I started off in this you know, sorrowful way about fires, floods, and plague. Those are all actually, in many respects, implications of extreme weather driven by climate change. And so we need the nuance to recognize there is affluence in some regards being driven by some kinds of inflation that we can use to then address some of the hardships being caused and not exacerbate the climate risks. I wanted to circle back to something Paul said about the need for more nuanced uh, response. Because I think there are a couple other pieces, and maybe this will be a transition into what Jen Squeeze has been advocating uh, and and recommending. Um, So I think one of the pieces, and Paul's already mentioned several times around the uneven impacts of inflation and the fact that like when it comes to housing price inflation, that actually means more wealth for homeowners. uh, And that is not necessarily a bad thing if you're a homeowner, uh, bad for affordability writ large. I think one piece of the housing component of this plan is that, you know, the so for those who might not have looked at the plan um, so far, there's a one-time housing affordability payment of $500 that uh, is noted will go to about 1 million lower income uh, Canadian households. 
And I think that is actually precisely the kind of place where, um, you know, maybe that sounds good to many people, especially if you think you might fall into that $1 million group. But, you know, if we're going to start thinking about having financial help with housing allocated to certain segments of the Canadian population, then boy, like, we need to better measure who is going to receive that money, uh, and not just based on their income, but on their wealth as well. So right now, if it's defined as low income, I mean, we could have we could be having that $500 payment going to households that have reasonably low incomes, but have massive housing wealth. Uh, And it's not obvious to me, at least, that that's the way we want to be designing additional support measures that are, are trying to alleviate the pressure, the really, the real pressures that some households are facing. I think similarly around, so Paul mentioned the dental care piece, which is the other one I wanted to touch on. And certainly you're not going to get any argument from Jen Squeeze about, you know, our medical care system isn't uh, comprehensive in many ways. It's missing dental care, it's missing vision care. You know, there's a lot of conversation right now about whether the coverage is adequate around mental health. But I think what... Pharmacare. Yeah, pharmacare, exactly. Like all the stories about people who have to choose between filling their prescriptions and, you know, paying for food. Um, So all those things are not good, full stop. But, you know, the conversation that we're having around medical care, and I think this plan sort of continues that, um, is the idea that that's what's going to build our health. That's what's going to generate health, better health for Canadians is investing more in medical care. And that is not at all in line with what the evidence suggests actually helps us create health. It's the social conditions in which we're born, grow, live, work, and age um, that ha- are more strongly connected with our health and well-being than the medical care we receive. So, you know, while sure, who wants to argue against kids having adequate dental coverage? I'm not going to do that. But, you know, there's this this notion that what's left for us to do doesn't stop with medical care. We have to think about where we're underinvesting uh, or the balance of investments um, between our social and medical care spending and how we can grow more urgently the social spending that we know will help build a healthier population and hopefully down the road create less reliance on the medical care that we, of course, all want to have available when we need it. So I think that's a big piece of what Jenskwee's um, has been talking about, and I think we'll be talking about it even more in the coming years, is we need to figure out how we can have a different conversation about what builds health and well-being. Uh, we need to recognize, yes, our medical care system, our public medical care is sacred in Canada. How we identify in large part ourselves as a country, we like to distinguish ourselves from our U.S. neighbors in that way, but it is not enough on its own. We need to make room for other sorts of investments as well and make sure that as we're trying to grow these new medical systems like dental care, like pharma care, they're not crowding out investments in the social conditions that help people to be healthy. Uh, Andrea, I think you mentioned the the $500 one-time payment to low-income Canadians. And I think it's specifically targeted to renters. That was my understanding. And I'm I'm a renter, and I'm also a part of a few online communities that are made up of renters. And the response there to that part of the plan has been, okay, great, $500 for my landlord. <laughs> but I'm sure it'll actually help certain people. Yeah, can I jump in on that then? First off, great that you found that detail um, because this is an announcement that was made in the 
I guess it was March 2022 budget, and then it said further details coming, and it's been hard to actually figure out what are those details. The fact that it's being targeted renters, I think, is interesting and could avoid then the problem that Andrea was describing about, you know, with someone, you know, with the pensioner who's got a modest income of 30, 35, 40,000, you know, would they qualify even if they're living in a $2 million home? And uh, that would not make good public policy sense. Targeting renters does make sense. In BC, we've had this thing called, it was going to be a $400 credit for renters and people like a dollar a day. And, you know, so the 500s, you know, (laughs) a buck 15 a day, um, something like that. And, you know, that doesn't feel like that much when we know that annual rents are up thousands over the last decade. Uh, Because of the you know, the growing gap between home values and earnings, and that has an impact on rent, but, you know, then it drives more people out of home ownership. They have to compete for the, you know, the scarcity of rent that's available, and that drives up rents. And so I can understand why there's a frustration, but I I think it's in those moments where I, I hope we can go from cynical to like, at least the direction of the policy signal the government's trying to send makes sense. Like, let's deliver this support to renters because it's renters that are disproportionately being harmed by housing inflation, homeowners not being harmed in the same ways by housing inflation. And that distinction needs to be made. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be some homeowners out there, especially with large mortgages, needing to renegotiate them that aren't going to run into problems. And again, don't demean struggle. But I think that we got to resist the cynicism to say, oh, yes, 500 for my landlord provided it's paid to the individual, (laughs) that that's not necessarily the case. Um, And so I just want to push back that way a little bit. I think, you know, if you think about the food prices, you know, what has Jen Squeeze been saying? This is an area that I think we're going to develop more in literally the years ahead. It's we got to build up a little more expertise on this front. But one of our recommendations is like, Okay, as we're fighting climate change, let's stop subsidizing fossil fuels. Let's eliminate all fossil fuel subsidies um, and then redirect those subsidies into investing into regenerative or restorative agriculture. This has two really, at least two really good benefits. One, it can contribute to food security. And the more that we have food produced and a diversity of food produced in this country to provide to Canadians, that can help mitigate against the risks of food inflation that gets driven by factors other than the global food network. And second of all, if you go from subsidizing fossil fuels to subsidizing sustainable restorative agriculture, then actually those agricultural techniques can absorb carbon in the plants and especially the soil that is being used to produce food. So it is a win-win in a way to like draw down carbon and fight what is contributing to climate change. And so I think that that theme of swapping from fossil fuel subsidies to subsidizing restorative agriculture is, you know, I I hope we're going to be able to talk more and more with Canadians about that because it does relate directly to this concern about food prices and the results for food security. So, I mean, we've been talking about inflation in general, and you've both pointed out that, you know, housing prices have been part of this, though, actually, in recent months, or at least in the last couple months, if anything, housing prices, because of interest rates going up, they've been stalling or declining in some parts of the country. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess maybe let's let's chat about that and perhaps some of the risk that poses to the broader economy. Yeah, that's a really great question. Thanks so much for framing it for us, Mayor. 
I think that one of the things that we're going to have to anticipate is that as rising interest rates provide the necessarily cooling force on home prices, it helps to like stall those prices in some places, maybe even cause them to, to dip. We could run into an economic discussion in our media that, oh, my gosh, we now are having a slowing economy or maybe, you know, the economy will, you know, will have negative growth for a while. You know, and that could, if that persists for too long, are we in a recession? And then we could go into a different kind of anxiety economically from inflation to recession. And I wanted to just make, make take a moment today to say we need to resist a, you know the possibility of panicking as specifically a decline in home prices stalls our economic growth when that growth is measured by our gross domestic product or GDP. Because one, one observation Jen Squeeze has been making for a while is GDP is way too blunt to measure by which our governments and, and others judge our economic success. Because in recent years, sure, our economy has been growing, but what's been driving that growth has disproportionately been rising home values, which have been going faster than people's earnings. And so for anyone who wasn't yet a homeowner, it's been driving up unaffordability. It's been making our major cost of living more out of reach by comparison with what we earn. That's not great. So if by contrast, what happens in the next months or next year is that we see home prices stall because interest rates are doing their job at dampening down the, the excess bidding up of home prices, that could have an impact on our economic growth and cause people to worry. And I hope we'll say, wait a sec, if what's driving that GDP slowdown is the fact that our home prices aren't leaving our earnings behind as much anymore, or they're getting more in reach for what locals earn and bringing things more into affordability, we should have, I hope that we can say, you know, that there's some, new, with some nuance here, that that could be a positive. Now it could put pressures on the revenues that governments are collecting, and it will force us to have to think through how do we grow our economy, not by growing the major cost of living housing, but by recoupling people's earnings to housing so that we can grow other kinds of industries, preferably industries that give us affordable renewable energy, affordable secure food, and those then help us be better protected against inflation in the future. But bottom line, when GDP slows, as it is likely to do, if it's housing that's causing that GDP slow, let's not panic about that. Let's actually potentially celebrate it. Let's hope that we can actually do that when the time comes for that. Yeah, we won't want, you know, in 2008, just that we in 2008, in the United States, a lot of people went bankrupt. Like, we don't want to be seeing that. We don't want to be seeing people lose their homes. But if we, if it's largely becoming discontent about a GDP number, as opposed to the reality of our economy in terms of what people earn and what their major cost of living is, that, that there's some positives there to get. We don't want people going bankrupt. That will, you know, that we would never, ever be celebrating. So I just want to bring a little bit of nuance there into my punchline, uh, make sure that I'm not, we're not being misinterpreted. So, I mean, absolutely, it's the case. There'll, there'll be a small slice of people who probably find that notion of prices stalling particularly alarming, um, you know, including those who bought most recently, you know, at, at, at really high values and now have really big mortgages because that's the only way you could manage to buy. And, you know, there's there's a conversation we can have about that. There's things we can do to cushion that impact. So, you know, it's not like we're suggesting we should just leave those people dangling out there on their own. But, you know, I think we also have to keep in mind that for many folks who bought, 
even a modest time ago. You know, yes, we are seeing some reports of prices falling a bit, and that's generating the predictable alarm, you know, like the language we use to talk about these um, small, the flattening out or small decreases is so out of proportion with what we're actually talking about, I think, in terms of what's been happening to real estate more generally, it's really interesting. So when housing prices went up on average across Canada, like over 20% just last year, never mind the almost 320% I mentioned since the year 2000, um, you know, small declines are not cause for everyone to need to freak out about, you know, the declining value of their asset. So I think we do have to keep that in proportion. I think there's a tendency, or sorry, in perspective, I think there's a tendency in sort of media coverage on this issue to see any decline as like, oh, oh my gosh, you know, this is a disaster. Um, when in fact, you know, we're, we're barely returning back to like what prices were three months ago or six months ago. And I think for other than for folks, as I mentioned, who bought really recently, or folks who perhaps who are very highly leveraged, you know, like, it's that's that's not the end of the world, we can figure out ways to manage that, especially when you layer that on with measures to try and uh, keep things affordable in other segments of people's lives, like reducing costs of childcare. So anything else on the affordability plan or on the problem of inflation more generally? Because I have one other thing I wanted to bring up, but it's a separate topic. No, I think let's go for it. Let's hear your other thing. Well, um, Paul, you sent me an email highlighting the fact that the Public Health Agency of Canada has recently awarded a small grant to GenSqueeze. It's about $250,000 in funding to increase awareness of the importance of social spending for positive health outcomes. And Andrea, you talked about how, you know, that's something that Gen Squeeze really champions. But actually, Paul, I had already heard that this happened before you sent me that. Oh, no. Because we had... (laughs) That doesn't bode well. (laughs) What did someone say about us on our social channels? Yes. So we had, we received some criticism on Twitter from someone who, who pointed out that we've received some money from PHAC and they asked like, okay, what is this money going to go towards position papers and board salaries? Why not use the money to buy AC units to avoid killing more marginalized people in the next BC heat dome? Oh. So your thoughts on that? Well, maybe your thoughts more generally on the funding and then maybe on that criticism. What an interesting critique. Well, actually, I'm going to start with the critique and then go to the broader issue. I really understand and admire those who work at addressing immediate challenges facing individuals in the moment. You know, let's use the metaphor, you know, someone has a cut on their arm, you need to put a Band-Aid on it to stop the bleeding. Many, many important organizations do that kind of work. It's not Gen Squeeze. Gen Squeeze does work about what's giving rise to the cut in the first place. We do work at the systems level. So if this person is wanting to critique us for receiving dollars to go and try and make change at the system level that is giving rise to a range of intergenerational injustices, that's fine. I will happily as the founder of the organization take that critique and engage in vigorous debate about why it's important for organizations like Gen Squeeze to receive modest dollars to do systems change while others are working hard and receiving funds I hope to you know try and stop the bleeding right now 
Which then brings us back to why we received the nearly $250,000 from the Public Health Agency of Canada. And Andrea articulated the argument earlier. The science is clear. It is beyond contestation on this issue. If you want to make our population healthy and well, you don't do that by primarily investing in our medical care system, which is there to pick up people once they have fallen sick, but does very little to promote well-being and prevent people from being sick in the first place. And so we know as a society, we know from the scientific literature that when we have sufficient dollars and when we grow investments more urgently in things like childcare or housing or poverty reduction or fighting climate change, those are the things that shape the conditions into which we were born, grow, live, work, and age, as Andrew mentioned earlier. And those conditions shape our well-being when they are not optimize, we're more likely to fall sick and then need to go to the doctor and use the expensive services that are available in an emergency room. If we invest in childcare recognizing, that's health promotion. If we invest in more affordable housing, because that's health promotion. If we invest in poverty reduction, because that is health promotion, then we will save money on medical care and people will live healthier, happier, longer lives, and they're less likely to die younger. So come at us if you don't like the fact that we got to, um, nearly $250,000 to mobilize that evidence into policy change so that we fix our broken well-being system, because I will take those punches every day of the week on social media and twice on Sunday. Can I add to this briefly just by doing some math? So I bought a, an AC unit just last week, actually, for where the baby sleeps. Um, and it came to $342. And if I divide $249,680, which is the amount that Jen Squeezer received by $342, that's about 730 AC units. And I would say that's a relatively small number of people who would get that. So it's not like we're getting a billion dollars here to... Oh, but we would take a billion. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. We probably wouldn't know what to do with that amount. I don't, I, not that I want to discourage anyone from giving us that kind of money. <laughs> well, but I do think that there is something. I think we should. It's courageous for agencies like the Public Health Agency of Canada and for the people who work in that agency to try and think in new ways, design funding to address the systemic level problems. That's harder than in many ways. Like it's harder to do, it's harder to sell uh, than it is to say we're going to fund air conditioning units for every vulnerable you know like 700 units mayor would cover the 600 and what is it 10 618 people who died in bc right like but that's an easy case you can make that case it's hard and you need a lot of courage and you need a lot of gumption to try and make that case within government for other kinds of funding for what it's worth on your metaphor though with your ac for your baby don't forget it's your baby's room most ACs that are actually going to do the entire apartment are going to, if I'm, if I understand correctly, even, you know, are going to be more than your 300 and something dollars and change. Um, and so if you're actually, to Andrea's point, like, oh, it might have done, you know, for the 600 people, maybe, yeah, they all hung out in that room. But I like your metaphor. And I think you're even being conservative with your, with your comparison. Yeah, I figured, you know, I don't know, let's do some math and figure out. And, you know, I, I understand when people complain about, funding going to one place as opposed to another. It's just, I'm not sure that we have to look at government funding in this way as if it's, you know, from the lens of scarcity, as I think Angie would, would put it. 
Yes, we need to use the dollars that we have available on the one hand to be adapting in the moment to the problems that are facing us in this instance. And we simultaneously need to leave adequate dollars to go and change the system so that we don't suffer this problem indefinitely. Because the moment we go and support one person who needed that air conditioner, you know, there's going to, you know, once the the dollars are, there's going to be dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands more. And a group like Gen Squeeze is trying to say, let's fix the problem for thousands and thousands indefinitely. And then we can reallocate the dollars to other things that make us healthier and well. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Gen Squeeze's Hard Truths podcast. If you've got thoughts about what you heard, let us know by writing to info at gensqueeze.ca. Also, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast. That helps us out quite a bit. And if you're feeling up for it, you could tell your friends and family about this podcast. You could even tell random strangers about us. You know, if you're feeling especially sociable, that's it's up to you how far you're willing to go. Anyhow, thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.